Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. I'm Timmy Troy, your host, and this week we're going to be talking to Siva Vadyanathan, the author of The Googleization of Everything and Why We Should Worry. A few weeks ago, we talked to Scott Clayland, the author of Search and Destroy, Why You Can't Trust Google, Inc. There's no effort to target Google or go after Google, but one thing I've learned in public policy world is that certain companies become targets, and When that happens, you have critiques from both the left and the right. This happened to Microsoft about a decade ago and really helped inform how the government approached Microsoft going forward. So as we look ahead through the policy landscape, it makes sense to anticipate that you will see government taking steps to address what is seen as Google's excesses. And I thought the Vadyanathan book would be a good counterbalance to what we heard a couple of weeks ago from Cleland. Both of them are critics of Google, but both of them are critics for different reasons. I will reach out to him right now, and we'll see why. Sipavadyanathan, welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Thank you, Tabby. It's good to be here. Yeah, we are thrilled to have you. Um, you probably will notice this in the course of the podcast, all you listeners, but Steve and I do know each other from way back. We were in graduate school together. And, the last uh, century. That's, that's true. In the previous century, right, yeah. Frighteningly enough, and um, I noticed throughout the book that our joint American Studies PhDs, his uh, perspective on uh, from being an American Studies PhD comes up frequently in the book, and we're going to talk about that. But first I want to talk our, our traditional jump-off question, which is, who are you? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to write this book? Yeah, it's been a, it's been, <laughs> it's been a strange trip to this book. Um, so I I did my PhD in American Studies at the University of Texas, as as you did, and uh, as, uh, yeah, hook 'em right. And and you know when when you were not, you and I were in graduate school, we were focused on the big ideas that had made a difference in in the development of this nation we called the United States of America. And you know many of those ideas were political, many of them were cultural, many of them were social, and uh, a good number were or technological. And the the story of technology in the development of America is, you know, contested and fascinating and and you know, it, it's the sort of thing where you can, you know, you can you can dip into the writings of of Thoreau, the writings of Henry Adams, the writings of uh, of of any number of Americans in the 20th century and find tremendous insight. So that stuff was swimming around in my brain, you know, because graduate school made me aware of it, but I hadn't really thought of technology as my subject for a long time. My my dissertation coming out of graduate school and then that became my first book was a cultural history of American copyright. Uh, and so, so much of that was legal and cultural. But of course, you get to the 1990s when I was actually working on this stuff and it can't help but be technological as well as you know, as I'm finishing this dissertation, the internet is is, is blowing up all around us and and you know what is copyright going to look like in the 21st century? Uh, so I, you know, I developed um, a, a bit of a, a bit of a voice uh, speaking about internet issues through copyright. And before I knew it, I was drawn uh, kicking and screaming into the 21st century. You know, neither you nor I were really trained to think about the 21st century. We hardly saw it coming, uh, and uh, and all of a sudden. I'm an internet guy, and uh, and I don't know how it happened, except that, that that's where the demand was. I mean, that's where the, a lot of the interesting questions were, um, you know, and, and what I found myself... And it was great was, timing. I mean, you were the copyright was, expert, as everybody was asking, I, well, what does copyright mean in, a, in the digital age? And only because nobody else had been lucky enough to think about copyright in 1993 when I started. You know, if I, you know, in 1993, I was thinking about hip-hop, and I was thinking about copyright and, and, and how it affects artistic choice. And there were a few people in the legal academy thinking about that, very few. There were um, obviously a lot of people in the music world thinking about it, but they weren't writing about it. 
Um, and, and so I just got really lucky having that sort of initial uh, itch about about that relationship, and, and you know, and then to start looking into that just as the technological changes were clearly changing the game all the way around. So I got tremendously lucky. I ended up, you know, by 99, I finished by, by 2001, my first book came out just as Napster came out and all of a sudden copyrights on the front page of every newspaper. And, and that was back when people cared about what was on the front page of newspapers. So that was kind of cool for me. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, but by 2004, I had done my second book on sort of how, how digital information was shaking up all sorts of things around the world. By 2004, I was, kind of at a lull. My second book had come out. I I was uh expecting my first child. I was uh you know, I had been married a couple of years. I I didn't know where I wanted to go next with my next project. I certainly didn't want to commit to a book that had to be done, you know, with an infant in the house. That's never a good idea. Um and you also you might want to add that you had a day job um, <laughs> yes, it's, uh, a number of prestigious universities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time I was a I was a professor at New York University. Um and uh and you know thoroughly enjoying that perch and and being able to you know speak publicly about internet issues and all kinds of different issues from there uh and uh but 2004 something interesting happened with Google Google announced that it was going to scan in pretty much the entire collection of the University of Michigan library and substantial portions of of four other libraries around the world and whoa this is a huge copyright issue right obviously the publishers of the world are going to be pretty upset about this plan uh, many authors are going to be upset. Some authors are actually going to be thrilled by it. Um, so it's a fascinating issue. And and I had not paid attention to Google as a company at that point. I was a Google user, as as many or most of us were by 2004. Uh, and I thought very highly of the technology I was interacting with, but I hadn't thought much about it. But this was a pretty audacious move. And and so I you know I started reading around everything I could about how Google worked and and why the people who run Google would even think. That, that scanning in millions of books, maybe ultimately billions of books, is a good idea for a company, right? I mean, is there really money to be made there? What what was the motivation? Um, uh, and I found that this company is is very eccentric. Uh, you know, something many people have pointed out in in many in many different ways. But but uh, you know, I just it it just got more and more um, interesting. And at the same time, as I'm getting more and more curious, Google is getting more and more powerful. By 2006 and 7, it's really clear that Google is going to be the most successful financially, the most successful internet company of all time, which isn't actually saying much. Most companies don't make money on the internet, but still, they're making a tremendous amount of money, right? And uh, 2007, I, uh, I had the opportunity to move to the University of Virginia, where I am now, uh, and um, uh, and 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 that was, you know, so that was a good time for me to sort of really seriously map out what a book would be like. Uh, so it you know, took about three years to, uh, to, to, to finish off the writing and the research of this book. Um, uh, probably three years because I did the writing before the research. No, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> but it happens a lot, right? <laughs> it does, right? Because sometimes you realize you really don't know what you're talking about when you've already written 300 pages. And, and, and that, that actually did happen. I had, I had a manuscript done by by 2009, that was just horrible. And, and my wife told me, this is really bad. No one would want to read this. And when you hear that from the person you're sharing your life with, you can't dismiss it, you know? <laughs> so I had to rewrite the thing. And fortunately, it, you know, it came out in, in early 2011. Uh, and, you know, I, I, all along, I called it the Googleization of everything, because what's fascinating to me is, is not only Google's vision of organizing the world's information and making it universally accessible, which is the company's mission statement, but our almost global and total embrace of Google, because it's just so easy and dependable and 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 good, right? And 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 that's really fascinating to me. And just the fact that when people talk about Google, they they talk about it in almost religious terms sometimes. At least tech heads do, you know. And people who work in software, they dream of working in Mountain View, California, where they will have the ability to think freely and experiment and do 20% of their time on something that will help the world and, you know, and, 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 and just, you know, work for this uh, angelic force in the world. And, and I, you know, I'm always um, immediately critical of any claim of uh, divinity uh, by mortals or companies run by mortals. So, you know, I just, I just thought there's, there's really something to unpack here. And I, 
So I did, I did what, you know, what you might recognize as an American studies approach to it. I wanted to unpack the ideologies at work. I wanted to, I wanted to, 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 uh, uh, connect stuff that Google is thinking about and doing now to stuff that has been working through, uh, not only American history, but global history for some time. Uh, I wanted to talk about, uh, uh, Google in, in terms of recent trends in globalization. I wanted to talk about it in terms of its relationship with the American political system, um, which is increasingly fascinating. Uh, and, uh, I wanted to talk about Google and China, which to me is just one of the, one of the most amazing and fascinating stories. Um, so while I'm trained to think a lot about 19th century American culture, uh, I ended up writing a lot about 21st century Chinese politics, oddly enough. That sounds like a perfect uh, end of an American studies degree, I think. So. <laughs> Maybe the end. We'll see. <laughs> right. Um, so you talk a little bit about people who want to work for this Angela company and all that, and Google famously has its motto of don't be evil. And a couple of weeks ago I told you I interviewed uh, Scott Cleland who said uh, don't be evil is a pretty low bar. But right. Um, is there a shift going on, or can we call it a Google shift? I mean, parallel to the Microsoft turnaround, where Microsoft was once this uh, powerful company that made computing easier, because that's really what they did. And then after a while, people started saying, especially in the tech head world, oh, well, Microsoft stinks and all that stuff, and worse, worse, worse words than stinks. And now maybe are people taking a second look at Google? Well, people are definitely um, sensing friction. And that's, um, I think, to be expected as Google expanded into other areas of life and commerce. Google was going to crowd out some other people and they were going to be uh, very worried. As Google's basically cornered the market on web advertising, people whose businesses run uh, based on visibility on the web find themselves at Google's mercy. Um, and, you know, because Google is for so many of us the lens through which we view the world, the stakes are very high. The stakes of visibility and invisibility are very high. Uh, and then when you add to that concerns about the, um, the the massive quantities of information that Google carries about us and, and sifts through and holds, when you think about the, um, uh, the ways that uh, Google has portrayed itself as, you know, as an angelic company, uh, as one that would, 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 would not be evil, uh, and and how it sort of opens it up to, I think in some ways, cheap shots about hypocrisy. Uh, uh, hypocrisy is not my favorite trope. Uh, you know, it just it it it, it really is. It, it's it's the stand-up comics uh, uh, way of analyzing the world. Um, but, because we but, in uh, American studies all have to memorize the foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of narrow minds, right? In a way, in a way. But, you know, I mean, actually, that my my issues with um with the sort of the gotchiness of um of uh hypocrisy comes out of you know just sort of rolling my eyes at this constant you know political journalist trick of of finding uh a statement by let's say uh you know um uh a republican state senator in the middle of the country who hates gay rights who then is discovered in a gay bar right that happens every few months or years and it becomes this big gotcha thing and i just roll my eyes saying you know that humans are uh, don't don't live up to their statements is not news. Uh, that we fail our own moral standards is hardly news. There are several major world religions based on the fact that we don't live up to our own standards, right? The the uh, you know to me the question is you know what does a political figure do in the world? What effects positive and negative does that person have in the world? That takes real work to analyze, you know. So that the attorney general of Alabama. Uh, you know, may or may not have had an affair with a man doesn't matter in the world. Uh, but what the attorney general of Alabama does as attorney general of Alabama matters quite a bit. So I've, I, anyway, this is, I mean, way off. But, you know, so when I approached Google, I tried to avoid the the um, cheap shot of saying, look, Google sets this standard for itself and look at all the things that I think are bad that Google does, which, of course, you may not think are bad or you know, Fred down the street may not think is bad, or the guys who run Google may not think is bad. Right? So what I think is bad or evil doesn't shouldn't matter to the conversation. What I wanted to get to is the role that that phrase plays in our minds as Google users and in, in the company's vision of itself. Uh, and I think this is really fascinating because I'm fascinated by the concept of corporate social responsibility. I, I'm fairly 
sure that I'm going to do my next book on the history of corporate social responsibility. And of course, this comes out of like sort of watching how Google plays this game. Um, there, you know, I think you'll you'll um, you'll be surprised to hear you know me well enough. You'll be surprised to hear that I uh, I, I deeply appreciate something Milton Friedman once wrote. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm on bated breath on this one. <laughs> so in in 1971, Milton Friedman wrote an article in the New York Times Magazine. Uh, roughly, I think it was I think it was titled um. Uh, uh, the responsibility uh, uh, of, a, of a corporation is is to make money. Uh, you know, it was it was basically it was a screed against the emerging ideology of corporate social responsibility. And corporate social responsibility was growing into a, a fairly important factor in American corporate culture in the late 1960s, as uh, you know, we had come out of the civil rights movement and its its boycott efforts. Um, and, 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 you know, people had sort of seen the power of certain boycotts. People had seen that companies like Coca-Cola, which uh, decided to be relatively liberal among Southern corporations, um, were rewarded uh, for that stand. And other companies were um, so damaged in the marketplace and, and uh, uh, for, for being against civil rights or resistant civil rights. Um, and, and there were plenty of other ways. You know, the, the rise of the environmental movement in the 60s as well played a large part in this effort to harness consumer power um, to affect uh, actions and policies in the world um, and, and, and make the world better you know, from, from certain points of view. Now, uh, what corporations started doing then is, uh, is sort of internalizing this and, and recognizing um, whether they were sincere or not. Uh, you know, we started to see a, uh, uh, a sort of um, uh, a sense among companies in the late 1960s, early 1970s that if you portray yourself as socially responsible, uh, you might actually be in a stronger marketing position. Uh, and, um, you know, because things like, you know, Lake Erie was on fire, maybe it's a good idea to portray your company as environmentally responsible. Um, and, you know, we see that to this day. I mean, BP was running pro-environmental ads right up until the day it could no longer get away with it. Um, and, and, you know, and so what Friedman was arguing is basically, look, companies have one responsibility. It's a legal responsibility, and that is to enhance shareholder value. And they have to do whatever it takes within the law to enhance shareholder value. And so they shouldn't waste time, energy, and money um, minimizing or reducing or, or stifling the expansion of shareholder value for the sake of some vague notion of goodness in the world. Um, if there is goodness to be had, the market will sort it out, A. And B, um, uh, if, um, uh, if you end up distorting the price, of your good or service by focusing on goodness, um, you're not letting the price system work as it's supposed to work. Uh, and um, and so he was basically arguing that uh, that that the ideology of corporate social responsibility was going to corrupt um, you know the entire price system of the economy. I don't I'm not sure he was right about all of that, but I I think his general gist was was correct. Um, and, and an interesting thing happens soon after that, and, and you can uh, you may be curious about this, but there's a there was a, a discussion in Reason magazine about five years ago that in, included John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods, uh, and a number of other libertarians who were who were sort of recasting or rethinking um, Friedman's uh, argument. And Mackey, you know, of course, a very strong proponent of corporate social responsibility, wanted to make the case that in fact. Friedman was wrong because uh, his company stands as an example of one that embraced corporate social responsibility at, at every element, at every part of its business, uh, and, and takes it very seriously and has been rewarded in the marketplace, if not because of that, then maybe despite it, but, but certainly has not suffered because of it. I mean, we wouldn't even think of Whole Foods if it, in any other way. you know, um, If it just rolled those products out there at that extremely high price, you know, what would we think of it in terms of brand identity? Um, so, uh, you know, of course, Mackey makes other arguments that his, his labor force is more stable and more, more happy and more secure and thus, uh, more, more productive, uh, because of his, his policies, et cetera. Um, and so it, it struck me that, you know, something interesting happened in the, in the seventies 
uh, in the wake of Friedman's argument, especially among libertarians. And I, I started looking through the business literature on this as well. And you can imagine that libertarians are looking around the world like everybody else in the early 1970s saying Lake Erie's on fire. The, the, the skies are clouding up uh, with smog. Um, and uh, we have some serious environmental problems. And we really have two choices. Uh, either we assert uh, the need for corporations to clean themselves up and we try to create uh, market-based reactions to that, or we are going to be stuck with a powerful EPA uh, telling companies, in libertarian terms, coercing companies into behaving a certain way. Um, and so uh, this, I think, is one of the reasons that libertarians have, have tended to embrace corporate social responsibility um, as, uh, as a, a way of dealing with uh, negative externalities. Um, now, I'm you know, so 180 degrees from there, I think uh, that's that's actually not the best way to approach it because that doesn't actually solve problems. And so that's that's where I'm going with the next book is, you know, does our our uh, our our experience with corporate social responsibility over the past 40 years um, actually indicate that we have methods of taking care of major um, social, cultural, environmental problems or uh you know, and, and have have we stepped away from the EPA model of uh, of trying to solve problems, which of course has its own flaws. But uh, I want to, you know, I want to, I wonder whether corporate social responsibility has depoliticized us. Um, and of course, this is a book that's um, its audience is is going to be much more uh, on the on the liberal left uh, of the United States than. Uh, uh, but I think that that libertarians will find it provocative as they often do of my work and. And I'd love to get some really good response to it. And I'm not even sure I'm going to write this book because I'm not even sure I'm right. Uh, and, and so I've been sort of road testing these ideas in a variety of places and hoping that people can prove me wrong. I would love it if corporate social responsibility actually did, you know, keep the earth a little bit cooler and, and, uh, and reduce asthma and, you know, make food taste better. If that, if that really is true, then great. I don't have to write a book and the world would be better off without more books for me anyway. So. <laughs> well, um, I'm not sure about that, but um, <laughs> l let's get back to this book for, for a second. I mean, you, you, um, you, you say that um, for the average person, Google does much good and little direct harm. And you have this great section where you talk about the others who have tried to do what Google does at its very heart, which is search. And you talk about Cool, spelled C-U-I-L, which failed, and Bing, which I don't think people really go to that much, and Wolfram Alpha, which d provides a different service, really, and uh, the European alternative to Google, which really bombed. Uh, yeah. So talk about um, why we should worry if we've got this company that just produces a product that people really like, and it gives it to them for free. Yeah, we should worry only because we are so dependent on it. Uh, and we should worry that um, – well, we should recognize that uh, one of the reasons it's done so little harm to us overall is that we've been lucky uh, that the folks who've run Google have actually not had to be craven uh, because they've had so much money. You know, when you're, when you're doing really well in the market, um, you don't have to abuse your relationship with customers and with other firms. When things are not so good, uh, there's a lot of incentive to um, uh, put extra pressures um, and and uh, and perhaps be uh, less responsible. Uh, and we haven't seen that day, but it could come if Facebook ends up taking so much web web advertising money away from Google, and that could happen in in five years. Uh, that that Google is actually pressured for revenue. Um, you could see a, ver a set of very different uh, policies. So we should worry because. The Google of of our experience of the past 12 years is certainly not going to be the Google of the next 12 years, um, partially because we should expect the company, like all companies, to uh, change with it, with its environment, um, but also uh, because uh, you know what we've seen over the last 12 years has been uh, really fast and fluid, uh, and what we may see over the next 12 years is is that the World Wide Web as we know it, right? the place where Google is, is master, uh, might not actually exist as we've grown accustomed. As we move to app-based interactions in mobile platforms that are much more proprietary, much less uh, customizable, as we uh, look at the continued fracturing of Internet uh, um, 
uh, interactivity around the world, right? If, if Turkey goes the way of China and walls itself off, uh, and we see India already starting to do a bit of that too, you know, we, 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 we couldn't end up with a lot less of a global network than we even have now. And, and I think we overstate often how big that is. There's so many changes that could undermine Google's position, uh, and undermine Google's benevolence, uh, which is one reason that, you know, we should, maybe smile and, and wink at the benevolence, but not trust it for the long term. Our dependence on Google is is dangerous because uh, Google knows so much about us. That information could be abused if people at Google wanted to abuse it, uh, could be abused by a state that doesn't respect its citizens. Um, you know, uh, if, there's a, uh, if there's a particularly nasty state that is able to grab information about Google users from Google, uh, either through legal means or some sort of subversive means, uh, that's a tremendous vulnerability to a lot of people. Um, you know, anytime there's a large collection of personal information and people's activities are, and ideas are able to be tracked so closely, I think we should be wary. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so it, it, the fundamental uh, goal of this book is to demystify Google as a system and a technology so that we understand there may be risks as things change and not be surprised that things will change. In 2011, the people who have to worry about Google are, are often competitors. There are certain markets where um, there's, you know, Google is a definite threat. For you and me, Google users, we're still really lucky here. We're, we have not been abused by Google very much. I mean, Google's made a couple of bonehead moves like uh, the Google Buzz project where all of a sudden, if you use Gmail, you, you, you had that moment about a year ago when all of a sudden you were sucked into a social network you didn't ask for and all your Gmail contacts were your, your instant contacts through the social network of Buzz and it was a debacle and they ended up getting fined by the FTC for violating their own privacy policy over that. So, you know, there are, there are, um, are a handful of instances where Google has abused its users. Um, but overall, it's not been, uh, a, um, a nightmare for us. In fact, it's been really good. So paradoxically, the fact that it's been good to us should make us worry. <laughs> it shouldn't make us quit, though. You know, like, and I try, you know, I try to make this clear. Like, I use Google. I, I encourage people to use Google, but I also use other search engines. I also use other email services. I think we need to encourage diversity in the marketplace. I think we need to encourage competition and creativity. All the creativity can't come from Google. Uh, we should. Definitely not boycott Google. In fact, I think it's pretty much impossible to boycott Google. You'd, you'd live a very poor life if you did. Uh, no YouTube, for instance. A webless life, pretty much. Yeah, right, in a way, right. I mean, I have a, a couple things in the book where I point out where people have tried. This one guy I know tried, but he was such a huge international soccer fan, and he ended up realizing the only way he could watch clips of international soccer was through YouTube. And uh, and so he, he gave in at, before his month without Google was up. Um, so, you know, there the 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 way to handle google is to um is to understand it if you understand it two things can happen if you demystify google you don't think of it as a mystical force in the universe or for that matter a force for good in the universe two things can happen one you can develop deep respect for the people who engage in the craft and i think that's really important because there there are people who are not just really smart but very careful and people who are willing to make mistakes people who have a lot to teach us who do this sort of work i mean the the brilliant work they've done on language translation is really impressive. Um, and as far as I can tell, it doesn't hurt anybody except maybe some translators, uh, professional translators. But, um, but it's, you know, that's really intellectually impressive. Uh, and, and the second thing that can happen if you demystify a black box like Google is you can be in a position to ask hard questions and, and raise tough issues. And, and, and if you're, and then if you decide that you don't want to use Google anymore, you've done it, based on information rather than uh, pure fear. You know, you mentioned 12 years, and it really is stunning to note that 13 years ago, really nobody had heard of Google, and now all these people are writing books about Google, and Google is dominant in that book about uh, I Feel Lucky, I'm Google employee number 59, was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal Review section this week with a massive excerpt. So one thing I found fascinating in the book is your section about how Google emerged out of nowhere. There was a Business Week mentioned in 1998, and then you say the New York Times deigned to talk about Google. And once that happened, the, the ball just never stopped rolling. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, you probably have an experience. Do you remember, by the way, do you remember the first time you ever heard about Google? Uh, I remember reading about something where it talked about this interesting technology where it took 
mentions from other sites or, or, or kind of like the graduate school method. And I said, wow, that sounded, sure. uh, or the academic journal method. And I thought that sounded really interesting. So I, I tried it. I don't remember the publication, although it sounds like that's pretty much what Business Week wrote. Yeah, it's how, it's, you know, it's how a lot of business magazines, were, which were the ones mostly covering Google in those days. You know, if you happen to read com- uh, magazines like Fast Company, which uh, which was just new at the time, or, or Industry Standard, you know, techie magazines, they wrote a lot about Google in the early days. But uh, for widespread um, knowledge, it, it was word of mouth mostly that got it around. Uh, and, of course, in academia, it got around really fast uh, because, you know, geeks were able to talk to other geeks. Um, and I, I heard about it through a news, an email service called Red Rock Eaters, um, that a Red Rock News Service, which was this sort of uh, techie, geeky, civil liberties um, group uh, run by um, a guy who's a professor in a library school at UCLA. And uh, and he early on, he maybe was right after it debuted at Stanford. Uh, this guy wrote, you know, hey, there's a really interesting search engine called called Google. Uh, you should try it out. And I did. And I, I was hooked like a lot of other people. And it's, so, you know, the, Google never bought an ad, right? Never bought a Super Bowl ad until like two years ago and and uh, and didn't buy a, a, you know, a page in The New York Times for its debut, didn't do press releases. It really relied on reporters who were techie coming across it and mentioning it in positive ways. And it relied on word of mouth or word of email, whatever it took at the time. And superior um, technology. Right? That's what yeah. they said. We're going to win on our technology, not on our marketing. And they did it. You know, it's like, it, it, it's what's weird about the rise of Google is it couldn't even be a business school case because it was such a rare confluence of things, of ideal things. It. It, this company um, was born in 1998, just before the dot-com crash. Uh, it, so it took a pile of venture capital money that it had not yet spent. It, it was frugal, unlike a lot of dot-com companies, which were blowing money on, you know, coke and strippers and parties. Um, it was uh, it was really geeky, like it was in love with the code and the data, and that was you know that was its core value. Um, it it had emerged from an academic environment. The 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 paper, uh, the I mean the, the the course search algorithm came out of an academic paper that Sergey Brin and Larry Page wrote while on a, uh, an SF grant uh, at Stanford University. Um, and so it, you know it had a very sort of academic culture there. They're both faculty kids, by the way, which uh, you know makes them weirdos. I'm a faculty kid, so I kind of I kind of get them, uh, you know, and. Um, uh, you know, so they just they weren't interested in the hype and they didn't seem to be interested in billions, even though they ended up getting it. They were interested in doing their best job. And that's the sort of thing that, you know, you would like to think that a lot of other businesses um, operate based upon. But in reality, very few do. And this one actually did. This was like this was beyond textbook um, because these guys didn't know what they were doing. And so they just did what they thought was was the best way to do it. And it turned out to be really Correct, really brilliant, and really lucky. So while the rest of the dot-com world collapsed around them in 99 and 2000, all of a sudden they left in their wake um, all of these, you know, basement, budget basement, bargain budget basement um, uh, servers, you know, racks of servers that Google was able to scoop up for pennies and then install open source software on. And, you know, a tremendous amount of surplus bandwidth was lying around and, uh, you know, uh, there was a huge glut of fiber optic cable and uh, and they and a lot of infrastructure um, server farms, they were able to snap up and 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 put to work for their own purposes. You know, so the rest of the tech world uh, sold off its bones really cheaply at the moment that Google had cash and very few other companies had cash. And they just weren't in a hurry to make their first dollar. They they carefully doled out their venture capital money until they figured out a way for advertising to make money, and they figured out a way to do advertising in a way that wasn't annoying, which you know sort of runs counter to the entire principle of advertising at the time. It is relatively not annoying. You said earlier that uh, Google is not harmful to you and me, in fact, useful to us as users. And, and I agree with that. I find it immensely use, useful in my work as a researcher and writer. But you also talk about some more authoritarian or less friendly government countries and how Google can not only be not 
per, perhaps not useful, but perhaps harmful to people who live in those countries. Can you can you talk a little bit about what's going on in China, but also in, in the, some of the authoritarian countries in the Arab world? Yeah, so uh, the China story is fascinating. Uh, you know, when Google decided to go into China in 2005, it was doing so warily because Yahoo had encountered a really difficult situation a couple of years earlier. Yahoo was one of the dominant internet presences and companies in China in the early part of, of the aughts. And, and, you know, the same way it was everywhere. And, and many, you know, hundreds of thousands, many millions of people in China used Yahoo email as they did and do here. Now, Yahoo, of course, like most companies at the time, um, when the internet was much slower, uh, wanted to locate its servers as close to the users as possible. So Yahoo's email servers were located in the People's Republic of China. Uh, that makes response a lot faster and more dependable, and it means they could have staff on the ground to fix problems and so forth. The problem with having information stored within the borders of the PRC is when police come knocking on the door, you have to give them the information they ask for. It's the law, and if you even if it weren't the law, you don't want to stare the government in the face and say, no, you can't have this uh, because you won't be there very long. Um, and, you know, so that that exact thing happened. There were some dissidents, some democratic activists and religious activists who had been using Yahoo email uh, for their correspondence and, uh, and organizations. And when the government came to knock on those doors at Yahoo, Yahoo had to give up the information. They really didn't have a choice. Uh, and, um, uh, and so when this happened and several people are still in prison being tortured because of this, Yahoo was horribly embarrassed and, and, and felt horrible about it. But again, the only other option it seemed to Yahoo at the moment was not do business in China. And for a company to give up the, not only the fastest growing internet market, but potentially the largest, um, you know, it seems like malpractice. Uh, and, and so Yahoo got pulled before congressional committees. Yahoo was uh, criticized by human rights organizations all over the world. Um, Yahoo lost a lot of users. It was not a good moment. Um, when Google decided a couple of years later that it, it needed to do business with China, it decided to do it on its own terms. So Google decided to locate only servers that do web search within the PRC. And offshore, it would keep the servers that would run Gmail. So that uh, when you register or any service that required registration, with Google, like YouTube, if you want to upload YouTube videos, all of those servers would be outside of China so that the government couldn't come knocking on the door. And they thought, well, this will protect people. It'll avoid a Yahoo problem. Uh, and we can run our, our fast web search within China. And, uh, and we can, you know, have a staff in China that understands Mandarin and, you know, we can do all this great linguistic experiments and so forth. So they thought this would work well. What they didn't anticipate was that the Chinese government had no interest in having it work well. The Chinese government was very invested in its chief competitor, Baidu, which is the, by far the most successful search engine in, in China. Baidu has a number of advantages in China. One is nationalism grows in China. The fact that Baidu is a Chinese company attracts more users. Secondly, Baidu has for many years offered pirated music and movies directly through its search service, which Yahoo, which uh, Google would not do. Um, and, and, and thirdly, it had the backing of the Chinese government, which meant it could sort of do more and be louder because it was, you know, in bed with the government. So Baidu had more than 70% of the market, but you know, look, if you have close to 30% of the market in China, that's more than most markets. That's, you know, a hundred, hundred million people, uh, or 300 million people, you know, not a bad, not a bad uh, bunch of folks to have using uh, using Google. The people who were using Google were primarily the cosmopolitan elite, people who lived in Shanghai or Beijing, who had either studied overseas or worked overseas, worked for banks, etc., uh, and were aware of Google's cultural influence in the rest of the world and thought of Google as being a much more cosmopolitan company. Uh, and so, but for rank and file Chinese internet users in internet cafes. Baidu was the place to go. Um, and so uh, that was fine for the Chinese government. But, you know, Google kept flaunting Chinese censorship laws. Um, they weren't quick enough taking down videos or blocking YouTube when there were protests 
in Tibet, China found itself having to turn off access to YouTube fairly regularly uh, whenever anything happened in the western part of China. Um, and this was frustrating Google. And then finally, in December of 2009, uh, Google found out that its Gmail servers in North America had been breached by some hackers who were located in the People's Republic of China. No one has any definitive proof that these people were working for the government, but it's not hard to imagine. And the PLA uh, has some been of active accounts, hacking uh, arm of it. The, the yes, arm exactly. Has an active hacking. Exactly, right. And those, you know, I mean, they're, they're as good as anybody in the world at doing that kind of work. And, and they happen to go after a number of accounts of human rights and religious activists and, and dissidents. So it didn't seem accidental. It didn't seem like a prank. It was a pretty serious breach. Um, Google also found out and 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 told the uh, National Security Agency of the United States that uh, at least 30 other U.S. companies had been breached in similar ways by uh, the same folks in China. To me, this should have been the screaming front page story that 30 major companies, some of which were defense contractors, had insufficient security to the point where the People's Republic of China had a pretty good sense of how to get into their systems. This is a major security meltdown. But of course, no one involved in internet commerce wants that kind of headline. So Google masterfully spinned this event as one about human rights and free speech, where it, Google's leaders immediately said, um, we are going to stop censoring our search engine within China. Uh, they didn't actually do that for actually, it's tough to argue that they ever did that. They kept the status quo. They kept their search engine running as is for more than three more months after this story broke. Then finally, they decided to shut down the internal search engine, Google.cn, and direct Chinese users to Google.hk in Hong Kong, which is not censored by Google. But because the signals have to cross the channel and through government censorship instruments on the way to China, people within mainland China do not get an uncensored Google at, at all. So Google's actions have not improved life in China at all. Uh, in fact, people in China now get a slower version of Google that's been censored by the government, but the censorship's the same. Google can wash its hands and say, it's not us doing the censoring, but the result is the same. Google managed to get lots of applause from human rights groups, uh, despite the fact that it didn't actually change the world for the better. Uh, I think this saga tells a lot. It tells a lot about the ways that Google was... Well, first of all, it says a bit about the naivete of human rights groups, uh, who, who are much more concerned more about... More than a bit, I'd say. Yeah, I'm much more concerned about a company seeming good than actually improving things or or doing anything good, you know? Uh and and the ability of Google to turn the story from from a, a really serious challenge that, you know, I I think we should all be thinking a lot about. Um, you know, the fact that we we rushed into connecting everybody to everything in this remarkably short period of time with all the virtues and power of that there are some terrible vulnerabilities here. You know, I mean, if, if if American defense contractors have insecure computer systems hooked up to the Internet, we should not be sleeping well. You know, <laughs> so uh, but that's, you know, it's sort of lost in the story. The story becomes this sort of personality thing of these great, you know, victors, these great champions of of, of human liberty standing up to the People's Republic of China. They didn't stand up. They ran away and they didn't shut down their entire operation either. They still have their offices in China. They still do research in China. They have contracts with Chinese manufacturers who run horribly abusive factories making mobile phones. You know, I mean, there's no way that Google has pulled out of China and absolved itself of collaboration with the bad things that happened in China. Uh, but Google has managed to stop actively censoring the search results as if censorship were even the biggest problem in China. The fact is, Activists and people who want to change China uh, and and risk their lives to change China, censorship is way down on their list of priorities. They're much more concerned about security, about the fact that other dissidents might be discovered by uh, by the Chinese government. They're um, they're much more concerned about the fact that you know the government lies about the structural stability of schools during earthquakes. Uh, you know, there's so many more important issues than web web search censorship. I mean, censorship overall is a huge issue, but web search censorship is, you know, I'm not sure that the government would topple if tomorrow everybody could see the tank man picture uh, in China. In fact, I'm sure it would not 
not be the case. I think that we have so much more work, and the people who care about uh, fixing China within China know that um, that that this is this is just a cosmetic issue. What what Google does in terms of censorship, but in and, the um, in the Arab world, you mentioned something about uh, Egypt and uh, Gmail being available there, and you don't quite say it, but it sounds like you imply that Gmail capabilities in in an authoritarian regime can easily be compromised by the state. Is that what you're getting at? Oh, yeah. And, you know, of course, <laughs> I wrote this and it was published when, you know, when Egypt was as authoritarian a state as, as China. That's not to say that in July of 2011, the government of Egypt is some sort of, you know, fabulous democracy that respects human rights. Uh, but it ain't. We but, get, uh, right, right, right. But, but, but Mubarak is gone. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. I mean, we might get there maybe with a lot of work if we if we actually care enough to uh, uh not we not you and i can't do anything about it fundamentally but um but uh at least we can you know hope that things get better but you know look the mubarak government was was you know was notorious for doing the same thing the chinese government did well except that the Mubarak government was so incompetent about the internet i mean that's what's really almost comical about this like the reason that so many people were fascinated by the role of Facebook in the Egyptian uprising was that the government was too dumb to know how to work Facebook. You know, the Chinese government never would have let that happen because the Chinese government would have had spoof sites calling for protests that would have been, it, it created massive roundups of protesters. Um, the, uh, you know, the, there were so many stories that came out of Egypt about, you know, security forces, uh, torturing people to get passwords to Facebook groups as if they have passwords, you know, like, you know, su such, um, such uh, ignorance about it. But, you know, the other thing about Egypt that, that does distinguish it from the, from the Chinese situation is that uh, Mubarak's government was very interested in being plugged into the global electronic economy and attracting internet entrepreneurs, maybe even growing a few, and so it did have a fairly open internet, um, as opposed to like Saudi Arabia, which does not. Uh, and and the, the the places that have had fairly open internets saw internet-based activism. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the fact that Google operated and operates in China, I'm sorry, in Egypt, made it uh, a potential vulnerability there as well. So uh, you know they they run their Gmail servers in places like Cairo, and so you need. If you're an activist, you know you have to be aware of that. And, and fortunately, the the groups that do um, the the NGOs around the world that advise uh, activists uh, in environments like that are constantly updating them on the policies and procedures of companies like Facebook and Google and Yahoo uh, and their security measures, and you know explaining how to use certain technologies that can mask your identity and so forth. Um, but yeah, it's. You know, I, I was I've always been struck by the fact that we focus so much on Google's experience in China as if China's the only company doing bad things on the Internet, the only country doing bad things on the Internet. When like right now, Turkey is engaged in some of the most extensive uh, government sponsored censorship of the Internet. And, and we're not paying any attention to it. The people in Turkey are. They're furious about it. Uh, at least the people in Turkey cities, the more cosmopolitan um, and connected people in, in Turkey are very upset about it. Um, but, uh, you know, that that's that's a story we're missing because we're you know, we have we know the Chinese story and we're happy to return to it. Yeah. Um, you've been very generous with your time, which which I really appreciate. But we have time for one more question before we get to our final signature question on new books, public policy. But one thing I noticed was your acknowledgments were lengthy. Uh, to say the least, and they, they go on longer than your average acknowledgments. And you mentioned that you reread all of Thorsten Veblen. You mentioned Williams, oh, yeah. William James, so your American Studies PhD coming in, uh, in to, into use over there. And you also mentioned uh, Cass Sunstein, who's now the regulatory czar over at OMB, and he said that you thought that he thought your work was on the right track. Well, I wonder what that means. Can you talk a little bit about all those? influences and people who've helped you come about the yeah. book and, and what it means that the regs are at OMB, uh, Office of Management and Budget, uh, likes your track, I guess? <laughs> well, we our, the conversation I had with Cass was before he got that job. He was uh, he was still living in Chicago, although he had accepted the job at Harvard that he has since taken leave from to go work for his friend, the president. Um, so uh, I, I've always always been impressed by uh, Sunstein's legal work uh, and uh, and his his 
uh, the way he looks at media, the way he looks at communication in America, his First Amendment work, I think, is 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 really um, clever and well and well put together. Um, so uh, he wrote a book called um, Republic.com, which um, uh, then turned into Republic 2.0. Uh, and and in this book, he makes the claim that our ability to use Internet interfaces to focus and edit to indulge our own preferences and our own biases in terms of the information we consume has the, runs the risk of eliminating one of the core information functions of a republic, which is common knowledge, um, so that uh, you know a, a person who is a very liberal Democrat will read Daily Coast and and TPM, and a person who's a very conservative Republican might read Newsmax and um, uh, and Little Green Footballs or whatever, and then and Don't the two might never line. read the same things, and they, that makes them. Oh yes, National Review Online. Any number, right? It could, it could have been, you know, and and under those circumstances, um, the the sort of the fracturing of common knowledge inhibits the uh, workings of a republic. It would be hard for citizens like that if if that became a a common model to engage in rational deliberation. And I'm I I found myself unconvinced by his argument, uh, both empirically and theoretically. Uh, first, I thought that there never was a time in American history when um, American citizens across the board actually engaged with a body of common knowledge. Uh, if we came close to it, it was between 1950 and 1999 or so. But I would say the mid 1970s, uh, with the rise of mass media. Yeah, maybe the mid yeah, right. Like when, when Happy when Days was on thing, the air, you know, when probably. something appearing on the front page of the Washington Post right. mattered, right? Right, but Happy you know, Days that was the moment. The, um, yeah, the right, right, yeah, with mass, yeah. Of, uh, American culture. But even then, like even if you think about institutions like the Washington Post and and the New York Times and and, and Walter Cronkite on CBS News, um, you still aren't hitting every element of America. You still are, you know, Washington. The Washington Post was not available for sale in Buffalo, New York, in the 70s. I can tell you that, you know. So like there were limitations on all this. So I was never convinced historically and empirically about it. I thought it was a provocative idea. Um, uh, but and he had no real evidence. It was a, it was he wrote the book out of concern, um, you know, which is a, I guess a legitimate reason to write a book. But I never agreed with that book. Also, uh, empirically, we've seen people who've done studies of reading patterns. They show that that person who is reading Daily Coast and TPM uh, is most most likely also reading at least the occasional post from New Republic Online or or, uh, or I'm sorry, National Review Online. Uh, and uh, or or or, uh, or or Newsmax, because um, if if for no other reason to make fun of or criticize or say look at these wacky people on the other side, right? And so the what we found is that that the studies of of the consumption of our most active politically engaged citizens is actually much more diverse than we would assume. Um, while there is a certain amount of sort of comfort food. Uh, diet going on among some people, maybe even a large number of people, um, it's not as simple as Cass Sunstein had predicted. So putting that aside, what I noticed with Google was something that Ellie Pariser has elaborated on in his book, Filter Bubble. Uh, and that is that um, Google itself does that sort of filtering, not entirely, not actually not at all based on explicit political uh, leanings, but you know, Google does uh, bring up things that Google knows you love. And it has a tremendous positive effect for shopping, but it's not so good for learning necessarily. So I wanted to sort of take Sunstein's argument and say, well, I'm not convinced he was right about the standard practice of, of Internet consumption. Uh, it is something to be concerned about when it comes to web search that is tailored to our own interests. The other thing I, I was interested in, and I think more his bigger influence on me was uh, the book he did with, uh, with Thaler called Nudge uh, about the role of defaults in our behavior. Uh, and Nudge is a book that walks through a series of social experiments that have been done showing that um, the way that choices are presented to people has a tremendous influence on the decisions that people do make. So it's not all a multiple choice exam. Um, so some of the classic examples are, uh, you know, in ballot order, uh, in for low, low ballot races, being first on the ballot uh, in the list has some advantage, some statistical advantage. For people, you know, because a lot of people walk into voting booths not knowing who to vote for for county commissioner because they don't think about the county commissioner race. But if, you know, candidate A is ranked above candidate B on the list, they're just more likely to push candidate A. 
that's a that's a classic um, uh, default setting behavior that's been tracked time and time again. Uh, the most I think salient example is with um, people investing in uh, choosing to save for their retirement. Uh, if you make it a default, as soon as you sign up with your new company, you know you enroll with your new company, and by default you're going to take 10% of your check and put it in your retirement account. Uh, very few people go in and change that default to change it to five or zero. But if you walk in, if people walk in and the default is at zero, relatively few people go in and change the default to five or 10 or change the setting to five or 10% savings. And in fact, it takes a lot of extra effort to educate people and, and encourage people to save for retirement. If you don't set the default at, at 10 or whatever, you know, set it at something as opposed to nothing. Um, and so they're trying to argue that, the, and this is what Sunstein has taken to the White House, this idea that you don't have to be um, purely coercive in a paternalistic way with regulation. You can just fix the defaults, still give people the liberty to opt out of a lot of different situations, and count on the fact that inertia, if nothing else, will keep people in the preferable um, situation if, that, if we all agree that it's preferable for people to save for retirement as opposed to not. Yeah, I think we could agree that it is. Uh, but then still giving, yeah, but and, and, but still giving people who maybe in a case where you know, oh my gosh, my kid's going to college, I can't afford to put ten percent away right now, or or you know, I, I have I have leukemia for the next two years, I need the cash. You know, in, in those cases, you have the freedom to lower your contribution, you have the ability to lower your contribution, but the default has already been set. So that's the sort of approach that he was taking. And that affected my work because it has a lot to do with uh, a number of things that happen in the tech world, uh, privacy among them. So you look at Facebook, when you sign up for Facebook, the defaults are all set in Facebook's favor and in favor of maximum exposure to the world and to everybody else in Facebook. And you have to know that it's an issue and you have to know and be confident enough to dig into the various menus and flip the switches to restrict the sharing of information to the people you want to share it to. If the defaults were otherwise, if the defaults were set for minimal distribution, which incidentally is how Google does its new social network. If you go into Google+, Plus, the default is that you're sharing with nobody and you have to actively share stuff with larger and larger circles of friends, um, which is, I think, a preferable way. Uh, it, it, it's um, uh, only, only because most people don't have the time to um, worry about uh, their settings. Uh, and so this sort of uh, nudges them to think about it and, and act upon it in a way that, that would be best for them. Yeah. So that was really his influence. So when I ran this idea by him, he thought it was a decent thing to follow. Yeah. But the, yeah, the American Studies, if you still have time, we can talk a little bit. Well, I actually, we do need to get into our, our final question, the, the signature question. Um, but I will say that on yeah. Google Plus, I'm not sure you're right about the defaults because I was just setting up my circles and the defaults were widest exposure rather than narrowest exposure. But in terms of our signature question, it is uh, – Maybe it was different. Right. Yeah. right. Maybe they're rapidly changing it. But the, uh, <laughs> in terms of the signature question, the, uh, uh, the, the Cass Sunstein is a good lead into it because the, the question is, if you were czar for a day, and he's obviously regulatory czar, what, uh, if you were czar for a day, what public policies would you promote as a result of what you've learned in writing this book? Yeah. Well, so one of the things you may have noticed I tried not to do was get too prescriptive in the book. And there were two reasons for that. One, I didn't think I was smart enough to, to handle prescriptions in detail, especially when you're dealing with things like antitrust, which I know I know at the most general levels, um, but I wouldn't want to have an argument with an antitrust lawyer. Uh, but but, uh, uh, but two, two things I would want to do, which actually I think are, are occurring uh, right now, and that is um, increased antitrust scrutiny of Google, especially in terms of the advertising business. Uh, to make sure that its market power is not being abused, is not you know that it's not abusing its market power, um, and uh, I'm not convinced that Google is abusing its market power, but I, I think the purpose of antitrust investigations is to is to make sure of that um, and, and keep it from happening. Uh, and secondly, I, I would like to see stronger privacy laws that would uh, influence things like defaults, um, so that companies that do harvest our personal information and activities. Uh, first, have to inform us very clearly in sort of classic Elizabeth Warren ways, you know, simple, straightforward language. So you don't have to read 30 pages of complex legalese about the privacy policy. It actually tells you in bullet points what they're watching, what they're taking and what they're doing with it um, and then give you a chance to opt into that uh, forum. So basically, if Google thinks it's going to give me a better service by uh, having me share more in a wider area, Google should sell it to me. Google should say, if you let us track you know, your activities around the web, 
you will get personalized search results that can help you buy better shoes or, you know, some way to phrase it. Um, I, I, that's what I would really like to see. Um, the second reason I didn't want to uh, uh, elucidate or enumerate policy specifics in the book is I want the book to matter in three or four years. And a lot of these policy choices might have been uh, worked through, abandoned, or even adopted. And uh, I, I wanted the book to be um, at least somewhat relevant in three or four years. It's always tough with a tech book to have that the case. But yeah, those two things would be, I would be a very gentle czar. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I would be the... I would be the kind and gentle czar. I'm um, glad to hear that. So, uh, you know, the, I, uh, yeah, you know, I, uh, you know, I think you could trust me to be czar. If it's czar for a day, you know, <laughs> but actually nobody should be trusted. A real czar anyway. So, um, but yeah, I would, I mean, I would do pretty much what's going on, what the Obama administration is doing, uh, which is um, uh, uh, engaging in antitrust scrutiny, engaging in um, uh, a, a pretty stiff view of, of, uh, of violations of privacy policy. But I would do go one step beyond, which is encourage, um, and this would be, you know, obviously Congress is looking at this, but but not too strongly uh, at um, at data valence as an industry and looking at how they should set the defaults for it. I'm not sure that do not track. I'm pretty sure that do not track, which is the sort of flavor of the moment in terms of Internet privacy, is the right way. I don't think do not track is. I think it's a it's a clumsy one size fits all solution to a much more complicated challenge. And I don't want to destroy web dev. Yes. Um... There, we had a slight, there was a slight delay on the connection, but um, well, there, gotcha. there you have it. The um, the author is Sivavadi Nathan. The um, the gentles book, are the gentles are the <laughs> book is Googleization of everything and why we should worry in parentheses, of course. Uh, Siva, thank you for joining us on New Books in Public Policy. My pleasure. This is great. Well, you just listened to a fascinating and I must confess longer than usual interview with the author Sivavadi Nathan, the author of Googleization of Everything. In our interview, we talked about some of his concerns with Google. He's not quite as critical as Scott Cleland, whom we interviewed earlier on the podcast, is. But he does think that we as a society need to think about Google's influence and how we should act in order to make sure that we protect the knowledge base of society and our own privacy. So um, he has a lot of thoughtful things to say. Overall, he's pro-Google, I guess. I mean, he, he does feel that Google has been very helpful to individuals and uh, relatively non-harmful to individuals, at least in free societies such as ours. But overall, he he cautions that we uh, take a look around and see for ourselves what we think is Google Google is doing and whether that is a good thing for us, for our country, and for society writ large. His efforts to demystify Google are valuable and intriguing. So... Tevi Troy for New Books in Public Policy. Until next time, keep reading. <laughs>